please uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 10. I want to finish where we left off last week and then spend a bit of time in verses 12 and 13. So 1 Corinthians 10. Why don't I read uh, 4 to 13? Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healings by the one Spirit. To another, working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Let's pray. Father, deal bountifully now with us, your servants, that we might live and keep your word. Open our eyes that we may behold the wondrous things out of your law. Your testimonies are our delight. They are our counselors. And so, God, please teach us to meditate on them. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we entered into this discussion on uh, what the Holy Spirit is teaching us on gifts in the church. In verses 4 to 11, we have this Exam or this uh, one in the many, many gifts, and yet we're one, just as God is three in one. And we saw that the main purpose of these gifts is verse seven for the common good. The Spirit gives them, He apportions to each one individually as He wills, and they're all given to us for each other. That's what they're for. They're for you to use to build up each other. Uh, last week, we didn't get to some of the specific examples of gifts in verse 8 to 10, so I wanted to do that. Uh, and as maybe you're aware, these gifts which have been given to build up the body have too often been used to tear it down, which is what's happening in Corinth. But rather than just making use of the gifts that we have, we envy those who have greater and so want to tear them down, or we fight and divide over what this, we, we argue about what the gift is. And so I, I want to encourage us not to do that. I don't think we are or have. In, in 1 Corinthians 14, the orderliness of the church, the orderliness of how we treat each other, the orderliness of worship is important. We're not to be disordered. We're not to be confused. We're not to... Um, do things in such a way that the body isn't built up but is only confused. And so that's what we want to do with these gifts. So in verses 8 to 10, we have this list, these examples. This isn't an exhaustive list. He's not writing all of the gifts, nor is he writing the main gifts. He is 
uh, focusing on a specific uh, portion of gifts that the church in Corinth was fighting about. And, and so these are just representations of who knows how many. They're specifically meant to deal with the division in Corinth. And you'll notice in verse 10, tongues comes last. Uh, later on in verse 12, at the end of uh, the ch- towards the end of the chapter in verse 28, he has another list. And again, tongues are listed last. Tongues are listed last because they've become first in Corinth. The gift of tongues has been elevated, as I said last week, above all the other gifts. And so one of the rhetorical devices Paul is using is to make sure he lists them last so that they get the hint. Uh, And so the order isn't that important except for that. And our focus on these three verses isn't often the focus of these three verses. The focus of them is to give an example of the diversities of gifts that are all to be used for the common good. Now, we do have to define them. We want to understand what he means by them. So that's not bad, but we don't want to fight over them. So so let's let's walk through them, beginning in verse 8. For to one is given through the Spirit. So again, note that. All of the gifts are coming through the one and same God by his Holy Spirit. To... For to one is given uh, through the Spirit the, the, the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. So we begin with wisdom and knowledge. Again, they're given. These are gifts of communication, of speaking. Wisdom, uh, Paul begins the letter, this entire letter in 1 Corinthians one seventeen, saying that they're rejecting Paul on the basis of wisdom. And so the Corinthians pride themselves on their wisdom, on their insight into mysteries. And since Paul uh, doesn't speak with the eloquence and wisdom that they think he should, they're rejecting him. And so Paul here takes a term which is very dear to them and is going to use it for the purpose of describing what wisdom is. Wisdom in the Bible is just applied knowledge. It's the ability to live well in this world for God's glory. It's, it's taking good biblical teaching and living it. Um, you go to people when you need help for wisdom. You want counsel. You want them to help you. That's what this gift is. It's the ability to help people live well. Knowledge, then, is more on the learning and study side. The utterance of knowledge is the utterance of Um, unpacking of teaching truth in a way that helps people understand it. Now, you can't be wise without knowledge. These two go hand in hand. Both are through the Spirit. And both deal with taking the truth of God's Word and teaching it or understanding it in the case of knowledge and then living it or applying it in the case of wisdom. Faith, the, the third gift to another, faith by the same Spirit. This isn't the saving faith that you need in Christ. Every believer needs to have faith in Christ. This is a a faith that seems to deal with um, having faith for more miraculous things to happen, which is why it would seem that gifts of healing, working of miracles comes after this one. In chapter 13, verse 2, he talks about the faith to move mountains. So this is a spirit-wrought faith in God to do something great in life that otherwise might not happen. So apparently this was a gift 
for believers in certain circumstances to have faith that God would do something beyond the norm, that he would do something great and powerful, and, and so healing and miracles might follow as examples of that. That again comes to the gifts of healing. Note again, as I said last week, we would expect to see the gift of healing, which is how, how we almost always understand it. Gift is in singular, as in you have the gift of healing and you don't. You have the ability to see people healed and you don't. That's not what the gift of healing is. That's a, a misunderstanding of the plural, gifts of healing. This is that there are going to be circumstances sometimes where somebody is ill or injured and God provides another in that instance the faith to look to God for the healing of that person. So this isn't a gift that somebody carries around all the time. This is a, in a, a God-given, spirit-wrought instance of specific ability to see healing. Now, sometimes we want to say in the Bible or apply this to people like doctors and nurses, that they have the gift of healing, which is true, of course. They've studied long and hard to help provide physical healing of the body, so that could be included here. But I think the instance here is something that's a, a more miraculous kind of healing in, a, in an instant in time. And I'm sure some of you have heard of these or maybe even seen them or been a part of something like that in your own lives. Next, then, working of miracles. One of the things to note when we get to the working of miracles is that the kind of the rhythm changes between verses 8, 9, and then 10. In verses 8 and 9, all of the gifts mention the same, the Holy Spirit. And then in 10, he just goes to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another ability. And so here again, the main <coughs> point of these verses is the one and the many. All of the gifts come from the one Spirit, and yet there's many and diverse among the gifts. So in verse 10, he's going to kind of transition just a bit, just nudge us a bit to thinking about the diversity. They're going to come more rapid fire without a mention of the source of them. But here it's the working of miracles. Uh, Again, faith, healing, and miracles seem closely related, but there have been in the Bible, as you know, many supernatural and amazing works. Things that aren't normally able to be done by human thinking and human strength. They are beyond our ability. They're supernatural. So we see these throughout the Bible, casting out demons, um, Paul blinding a sorcerer in Acts 13.11, many amazing miracles. And so one of the gifts of the Spirit is the working of these miracles. These are given... um, as God wills, by His Spirit. Now we get to some of the more controversial ones, prophecy and then tongues. Are you aware that these are controversial? Uh, Being serious here, right? These, okay, have caused great controversy. And so if any of you are desiring to use these for controversy, uh, don't. We're not going to have that here. We do want order. These gifts are meant for you to love each other. Chapter 14 is almost entirely devoted to dealing with the issue of prophecy and tongues. And so I'm going to deal with these here as I've done with the previous gifts that we just went through rather quickly because we'll be having a whole chapter in the coming weeks on these gifts. One of the striking realities in the New Testament 
is how little prophecy there is in comparison to the Old Testament. I don't know if you've thought about that. The Old Testament has prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. Then we get the New Testament, it's kind of gone, except for a few instances in Acts. Why is that? Well, the New Testament is about fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. The focus isn't on more prophecies in the New Testament. The focus is on all of the promises fulfilled in the New Testament that were made in the Old Testament. And yet, in Joel 2.28, one of the prophecies is that when the Spirit of God is poured out in Acts 2, generally, on God's people, that one of the indications of the outpouring of the Spirit, one of the signs, would be prophecy. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.20, we're taught to not despise the prophecies. Well, what is prophecy? Well, typically, the prophets declared God's judgments and God's promises of salvation, often uh, accompanying them with great signs of power. Now, the, the prophets did speak often about things to come, but more often they were just simply preaching heralding, declaring the Word of God with judgments and promises of salvation. And so, we need to take care with what we understand prophecy to be. There are many charlatans and liars uh, in regards to this gift of the Spirit. You see them on TV all the time and they typically ask for your money. Uh, They predict things. They're wrong often, and if you're not aware, the penalty for a lying prophet was death. (laughs) It is those who would deceive God's people for monetary gain or uh, to to greater reputation. If they were wrong, they were to be put to death. And so we do need to take care here. One of the synonyms in the Bible for prophet is just preaching. These are just people who are given God's Spirit to declare the truth of God's Word for the building up of God's people to warn them from their sin and to urge them to turn to the salvation that God would provide in Christ. And so God has chosen men throughout the history of His redeeming God's people, we call them the prophets and the apostles, that the Holy Spirit inspired to speak and write his infallible word, which is eternal and without error and which is no longer open. We don't, there won't be addition to Scripture. The time of God declaring the truth of his word, the inspiring of his holy eternal Scriptures is complete. We expect nothing to be added to this because nothing will be added to it. The time of the prophets and the apostles is over in this sense. And so what then is this prophecy today? In 1 Thessalonians, again, 5.20, do not despise the prophecies. This seems to be God by His Spirit within the gathering of His church using people to declare the truth of God's Word to them. I, I think this is mainly preaching. There may be times where somebody believes themselves by the Holy Spirit to be given the ability to 
give an encouragement or a warning to God's people of something to come. That could be, and it should always be tested against Scripture. But we have to take care here. As a pastor, when somebody comes to me saying, I think God is telling me, little alarm bells start ringing in my head. Because I've just seen that abused so many times and used to manipulate God's people into believing them or exalting them over others. And so we need to take great care because of the abuse of this gift in the church. The next gift, the distinguishing of spirits, is probably the most hated gift in the church today. Uh, When you read the word spirits, don't think here of like demons or angels. Don't think here of beings without bodies. Uh, spirit here means person. It's referring to people. In uh, 1 John 4, 1, it says, Test the spirits, whether they be from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. So he's talking here about those who um, believe themselves to be communicators of the truth of God. That we are to use the gift of discernment in the church, to distinguish between who is from God and who isn't. And so this is the gift of discernment, the gift of carefully evaluating, scrutinizing what is being done in the name of Christ to see if it is really Christian, if it's really biblical and faithful. And this is the most irritating gift in the church. These are the people who look very closely with great scrutiny over what's being preached and taught and sung in the church. And it's often in the area of music where people get the most upset because they will get all up in arms if the preacher says something that is out of line of Scripture, and they should. But then we've just sung five songs which are, eh. We don't apply this gift there. And yet it's, it's the most needed gift in the church. As the Apostle John said, that there are many false prophets going on in the world, the same is true in our day. And these folks are often the most disliked in the church. They're fathers and mothers. They're gate guarders. They keep out what is false and only welcome in what is true. They urge you not to listen to so-and-so, but to consider another. And, and the reason that this gift is so needed in the church is because the prevalence of your access to so much teaching on the internet that goes under the name of Christ, but that so much of it isn't. So this is the gift of a father whose young son or daughter gets really angry at you because all of my friends listen to it. Many churches sing that song. Yeah, well, not this one. (laughs) This is the gift of discernment. This is the gift of evaluating with scrutiny what we're allowing in. This is dietary restriction. That's what this is. This is making sure that we eat good meat and vegetables and good dessert drink the good wine, and keep the bad stuff out. All right, now to tongues. Um, 
we have entire denominations split from other denominations based on this gift. We have entire denominations that teach either you are not a Christian or you're a less spiritual Christian needing a greater experience of the Holy Spirit and the gift of tongues if you don't have the gift of tongues. So tongues then becomes in some denominations the dividing line between those who are Christian or not or those who are really spiritual Christians and those who are kind of second class, and it is an awful lie. That is the error that Paul is rebuking in Corinth that the Christian church apparently is too narrow, like they're they're too short-sighted to read the Bible and go, oh, that's us. Well, what, are, what is the gift of tongues? Can I disappoint you right now? I don't know. <laughs> Some think, and I, I would align with those, that these are actual human languages, which is what we see in Acts 2, and later on in Acts, where God, by His Spirit, has given somebody the ability to speak in Swahili that had never spoken in Swahili and doesn't know Swahili before for the purpose of declaring the truth of the gospel to them. The context is almost always missions, always frontier missions. That's what I think they are. But in chapter 13, Paul does reference in verse 1, speak in the tongues of men and of angels. So some think that this is more of a Angelic language, not a human language. I don't think so. But it's not clear. So let's be okay with not having to drive a stake in the ground where soil isn't real firm. The issue here is the elevation of this gift. I was, when I first became a Christian in college, part of Campus Crusade for Christ and there were some in there who really thought very highly of this gift and uh, they were trying to teach me how to speak in tongues and just said I should start saying some kind of gibberish and then the Holy Spirit would take control of my mouth and then I would start speaking in tongues. Have you ever been in something like that? That's typically from what I understand how it goes. It never happened, and I thought it was foolish. I went along with it because I was young in the faith. Um, Because the issue was I was becoming convinced that the Holy Spirit wasn't at work in me if that wasn't going to happen. And to doubt whether or not you have the Holy Spirit, whether or not God loves you and that you are in His. And there's nothing in Scripture and nothing in church history that teaches anything like that. It's absolutely false. It's absolutely false. So then, this is the ability to at least speak in some other language and to interpret it. 
which can be useful, of course. But later on in 1 Corinthians 14, we'll see that prophecy that is declaring the truth of God's word is intelligible and so builds up the church where the gift of tongues, especially without an interpreter, isn't. And so we should much prefer those gifts that are better used to people. That's what we want to do. So those are the gifts. <clears throat> Let's move on then, if I can, to 12 to 13. I feel like, like taking questions or something now. But we're not going to do that. Um, last week I exhorted you, I closed with an exhortation for contentment, to be satisfied with the place God has you, to be satisfied and contented with the abilities and talents and gifts where God has you. And that is true. This week, what I want to exhort you to do is to love the church. I want to, let me just read again if I can. Verse 12. I think something will kind of go with you. Why does he say it like that? For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Do you expect the word Christ there? Seems weird. Odd. Not Christ's name, but He's not talking about Christ. What is he talking about? The church. Paul here transitions to the analogy of the human body, which he'll carry through the rest of chapter 12. He, he wants to use the human body as one body with many members as a metaphor for the church. We have many members, and yet we're one body. And so we would expect the last word of verse 12 to be, and so it is with the church. Or maybe with the body of Christ, but he just says, and so it is with Christ. And it confuses a lot of people. What, what is this with the body, and then he just goes to Christ? Well, Paul is going to do in the rest of the chapter what he began to do in verses 4 to 11. He wants to show the diversity in the body, the diversity of the gifts, or the diversity in the church, the diversity of the gifts, and yet we're one. Because we have one Savior, we have one Spirit, we have one Father. So that's what he's doing here. And in verse 13, we see that. He uses the baptism, baptized into one body, and then at the end of verse 13, made a drink of one Spirit. I think that's the Lord's Supper. So he's using baptism and the Lord's Supper, the two sacraments given to the church to show our unity. We all have to undergo the same baptism. So if you haven't gone to under baptism, you should. And then we all together celebrate the Lord's Supper, showing our unity, showing our oneness, and yet there's great diversity. And the diversity mentioned in verse 13 is ethnic diversity, Jews and Greeks, or socioeconomic diversity, slaves and free. So incredible diversity in the church, and yet great unity, and that unity is put on display in baptism and in the Lord's Supper. That's been the theme. And then in verse 12, he's going to introduce this metaphor of the body, of the human body, which you're all very familiar with, to help us understand this reality. And so I want you to see the great kindness of God, 
by the Holy Spirit where he makes use of things that we're all very aware with and very familiar with to teach us a central truth of the church, which is what he's talking about here. You don't need a degree in biology to understand this metaphor. He, he uses very um, understandable, very relatable, everyday realities to teach you the wonders of his kingdom, the human body, one in many. And you all get this, right? You all get the human body, many members, and yet it's one body. But then he, he does this thing, so it is with Christ. So it is with Christ. We don't expect the word Christ there. I think if we can just be careful in our reading, we, we expect him to say church or maybe the body of Christ, but he just says Christ. So it is with Christ. He's talking about the church, though. So it is with Christ, but he's talking about the church. You and I are so close to Jesus Christ. We're so united with Jesus Christ that where Paul should say the body of Christ, where he should say the church, he just says Christ. Who are we? We are so synonymous with our crucified, resurrected, and exalted Lord that Paul just, by the Holy Spirit, just puts his name there where he means us. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? I mean, if we didn't believe in the inspiration of Scripture, we would just think that Paul has like a Freudian slip here. That he's thinking about the church, but he knows our connection with Christ, so he just mistakenly puts Christ there. But the Holy Spirit doesn't make any mistakes with Scripture. And he wants to communicate to you in a way that should shock you to place the only name given under heaven by which might be saved, the name that's above all names, in the place where you expect to, our name to be. It's really something. It should be very encouraging. But we've read this before. Jesus in Matthew 25 says, I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was in prison and you visited me, and then we say, uh, you haven't been here for 2,000 years. When were you naked and I clothed you? When you were, well, what you did for my brothers and sisters, you did for me. Because Jesus is not ashamed to identify himself with us such that his very precious name, he names us with. It's incredible what's going on here. And there is no other, no other institution on the face of this earth, no other organization, no other society that is said to be this. Which means, of course, there is no other greater institution on the face of the earth, than the church. Your family is not called this. 
the nation in which we dwell is not called this. Parachurch organizations, college Christian groups, Christian camps, all, all of these wonderful are not called this. All of the other groups and organizations that you give your heart to are not called this. This is unique. And, and he is talking here about a local church. He's not talking about the church universal, the church big C Catholic. He's talking about a local church in Corinth that has many members who are all gathered together with many gifts. He's not talking about the church for all time, the invisible church. He's talking about a visible local church, which with he names his name. He's talking about us. He's talking about us. And he is our head. We are named for him. This naming thing is huge in the Bible. Adam is given the right to name all the animals and his wife. Why? Because he's their head. He's their chief. He is the one that represents them all. That is responsible for them all. That rules them. Christ is that for us. He is our head. We find our life and our meaning and our worth and our everything in Him. He is the source of everything that we want and need. It's Him. All the joy and happiness that you seek in this world is found in Him. And that is experienced in the gathering of His people at your local church. It's a delight. And yet... How little do we think of his church? How little do we think of his church? It really is shameful for us as believers for how little we think of his church. I know many of you give a lot of time and a lot of energy and it's, and it's really wonderful and, and some of you don't. I just want to talk about your heart affection. Who has your heart? Does the gathering of saints, the saints at Pine Grove Community Church, do they have your heart? They have your affection, your love, your commitment, your loyalty. Do they have you? You for them in a way that you're not for anything else on this earth. Because there is nothing more important on this earth than the local church. There really is nothing more important. This is why Jesus says, unless you hate your father, mother, brother, even your own life, you do not love me. And in 1 John, he says, you cannot say you love me and not love my people. You cannot sing victory in Jesus if you're not 
giving yourself for his body that he here names Christ. I'm not meaning to like beat you down about this because many of you do love the church. You love us. You give yourselves for us. And yet there's many in this day who treat the church you know, like you do a supermarket. Who's ever got the better thing going? Like a just like a consumer. Or you treat other Christian leaders that you see through social media or on media as if they're the leaders God has given you here. You don't give us your heart, but you'll give them your heart. You won't give us your ear to the teaching we're doing here, but you'll give them it. Let me close by um, applying this to voting. Seems strange, but I was thinking about it. We're in that season. You have cast a vote or will be casting a vote. I wonder how you might take the truth in this text about your care and allegiance and affection for the church of Jesus Christ into the voting booth. It appears to me, and I'm not that old yet, but we actually are facing in our country um, those who overtly despise the church and that do her great harm. That want to take away the freedoms that are not just guaranteed in the Constitution, but are in the Constitution because the Creator has guaranteed them to worship Him according to His truth. So as you vote, consider voting for those candidates that you know will protect the God-given freedoms for His people. That's how we can take this kind of text home. We can apply it everywhere. We can live it everywhere. Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. That's true. That's a political statement. There are two kingdoms in this world, right? There are two cities. And Christ's kingdom, Christ's city will prevail. The expression of that on the earth is the local church. And nothing will prevail against them. And that includes how we vote. And so consider that. But take comfort that the church is Christ's. We are his body. We will never fail because he has risen and ascended and we are his we've been baptized into his body by the Holy Spirit we drink the same drink in one spirit in the Lord's Supper so in a time of difficulty in a time of upheaval we have nothing to fear because we are Christ so the 
end there of chapter of verse 12 and chapter 12, so it is with Christ, ought to be unthinkably comforting to you. We're his. And he's Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father, help us to take this home, please. Please help us, especially in the area of affection, that we would give our hearts to your people. There are some here who have been hurt by the church, been neglected, or even actively harmed. They're reluctant. And so, God, I pray that you would help them. There are some who are just loving things more and other than the church, who consistently put things before us. God, help them to see the worth of your church and how no time, energy is wasted in giving to her. And then, God, expand what we normally think of as the church beyond just Sunday morning, that we would live our Mondays to Saturdays, praying for inviting, hospitality, all of it helps to love your church because you loved and gave yourself for her. We praise you for your church. Thank you for this church and the saints here. May your blessing be on us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.